0: So this marks the third consecutive week that we've been lingering at the foot of the cross as a local church. And, you know, we're probably pressing, uh, coming upon or maybe passing the threshold of our third hour of consideration. And that may seem like, uh, you know, an unduly long time just to linger there, especially when it takes about three or four minutes to read the passage in its entirety, but the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, if we put the gospel accounts together, for roughly six hours. So our consideration concluding today of the cross account in John's gospel will have been about half the time, cumulatively, that we've set under this time together and uh, half the time that Jesus actually hung there and suffered for our sins. So, I invite you to join me on the top of Golgotha in John chapter 19 and to look again at the man on the middle cross. John 19, I'll read our sermon passage picking up in verse 31. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation and I invite you to hear the voice of God. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken and again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. Join me again as we pray. Father, I pray that you would spare us from being like the religious Jews in this passage who wanted to hurry up and get to their religious activity and get rid of Jesus on the way. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see in this passage what you foretold long before through Exodus and the Psalms, through Zechariah about what would happen to the Messiah and what you would accomplish in his death for those whose faith is in him. Open our hearts to see. Open our hearts to believe. And minister to us today through the gruesome death of the only Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. As I read and reread this passage, it becomes more and more apparent to me that there's three aspects of what John records. The first is the Jews and, and their desire for the legs of the criminals in their estimation to be broken so that their death could be sped up. And so that's in verses 31 to 34. Then John just gives a personal vantage point of what he saw. He was standing there as these things unfolded in verse 35, then in verses 36 and 37, John wants to remind us that all of this took place to fulfill the scriptures. So there's the, the situation in 31 to 34, there's John's vantage point in 35, and then the Old Testament support in 36 and 37. So we'll just take them in that order. And the first thing I want us to look at in verses 31 and 34 to 34 is wickedness. Dark Demented spiritual blindness. That's verse 31 to 34. It's worth rereading and maybe you'll see the point before I even begin to expand upon it. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate, that is the Jews asked Pilate, That their legs, that's the three men on the cross, legs might be broken and that they, that's the men, bodies after death on the cross might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead so they therefore didn't break his legs. But a sinister soldier thought that death wasn't enough for Jesus so he jabbed his side with a javelin, a spear and then blood and water came out. And I'm calling this wickedness. This is dark, demented, spiritual blindness. So if you were to close your eyes now and squeeze your eyelids as tight as you could, that's what point one looks like, spiritually. Blindness, by definition, is an inability to see. It's to live in perpetual darkness. There's never a time that even a glimmer of light enters physically into the realm of a person who's physically blind, but these people are spiritually blind. They have never had and they do not have spiritual light. They're spiritually blind. They live in a perpetual spiritual darkness. But I've called it not just a darkness and a spiritual blindness, but I've said it's wickedness. I use the word dementedness. The definition of demented is, quote, behaving wildly and irrationally on account of anger, distress, or excitement. Its range of meaning is to be dangerous and sadistic. That's what I mean by demented. These people are spiritually blind and they are demented. They are wicked. That's on vivid display in verses 31 to 34. It's a spiritual wickedness. John wants us to see that while these people I'm saying are spiritually blind, that it's daytime. It's, it, it's bright outside. The other gospel writers tell us that darkness did cover the earth for some time during the crucifixion of Jesus, probably for about three hours from noon until 3 p.m. But by the time he gave up his spirit, which John tells us happens in verse 30, I believe that the sun had again begin to shine But it's daytime here and we know that because of an indicator John gives us in verse 31. It's an important detail. It was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Well, when did Sabbath begin? By way of refresher, it began at sundown on Friday and lasted till sundown on Saturday. So it's daytime, it's daylight. The Jewish Sabbath was soon to begin now, can you see our first point in verse 31 in hypercolor? The darkness and dementedness of spiritual blindness, wickedness in the lives of these Jews. Verse 31 says that it's Jews who had some religious stuff that they needed to go take care of on the Sabbath, a special Sabbath. It was the Paschal Sabbath, it fell on a special day, it was Passover Sabbath. And so let me just put it all together now for you that I've put a bunch of pieces of the puzzle out on the table and try to see if you can see them click together. These people needed Pilate to hurry up and murder these three men so that they could get their corpses taken care of prior to sundown, that is the Sabbath, because they had some important religious exercises to get to later that evening. They were urged to kill the Christ, that is the soldiers via Pilate, At request of the Jews, they were urged to kill the Christ in order to keep the Sabbath. Do you see their spiritual blindness in the brightness of daytime? Do you see their spiritual dementedness? Sin makes you stupid. And these people are sin-crazed. They can nonchalantly commit murder on their way to church, if you will. That's how spiritually demented they are. That's how blind they are. Do you remember Jesus talked about people like this? Literally, he said in John 16, they will kill you because they think they're offering service to God. These people are on their way to the synagogue as they commit murder. In their effort not to defile the Sabbath, these Jews believed that they were actually honoring God. That's how spiritually blind they are. Do you wanna know why they believed the lie that they were honoring God? Because they believed it. Do you wanna know why you believe lies? Because you believe them. They didn't want Jesus hanging on the cross overnight because they needed to honor God. They were thinking of Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day for He who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. They wanted Jesus off the cross, dead, before sundown on the Sabbath to show that he's a Deuteronomy 21, cursed of God man. They were honoring God. They're keeping the law. They're murdering somebody on the way to church. They're spiritually blind. They're totally wicked. They are spiritually demented in their wickedness. This blindness and dementedness is so thick in verse 31, they can't see it, but they can hear it. Can you hear verse 32? Having received the command from Pilate, a soldier raises something like a sledgehammer and with one or multiple whacks shatters the bones in the leg of the first man. In agony he pushes up on his remaining whole but no doubt pierced leg to get one more breath as the mallet is raised again by the sinister soldier to shatter the second leg as well. It is an absolutely gruesome sound. When the sledgehammer strikes the bone, it sends a crackle through the air that nobody can avoid hearing. It's a gruesome sight. No man, uh, this man can now no longer breathe. If you would have been standing there, you would need counseling to deal with your trauma for what you're seeing and hearing. This man can't breathe any longer. His life evaporates right before your eyes. As the soldier, for some reason, doesn't go in convenient sequential order. He smashes and pulverizes the bones and the legs of the first man. His life evaporates right before your eyes and instead of in sequence, he walks behind the cross of Jesus and he goes to the other thief. The Gospel writers don't tell us which man's legs were crushed first. If the first to die was the man that Jesus saved just a few moments earlier, then that man was forever free in the presence of God before his fellow criminal died. If he was the one who perished, the reprobate instead of the regenerate, then he was in eternal agony more intense than the cross could have ever inflicted upon him before his fellow thief died. As you're watching the life leave the body of the first man whose legs were broken broken on the cross, once again, before you can recover from the trauma, one swing, you hear the crack of the bones, and it sends a chill down your spine, and the second man is dead. Their eternal destiny is sealed. It is everlastingly too late. One in everlasting torment and one in everlasting paradise, one in glory forever satisfied, one in hell forever suffering. John doesn't want you to look yet at the man on the middle cross. We're told from crucifixion scholarship things like this. The normal Roman practice was to leave crucified men and women on the cross until they died. This could take days. It was common to then leave their rotting, decomposing bodies hanging there on the cross to be devoured by vultures. If there were some reason to hasten their death, the soldiers would smash the legs of the victim with an iron mallet. Quite apart from the shock an additional loss of blood. This step prevented the victim from pushing with his legs to keep his chest cavity open. Strength in the arms was soon insufficient and asphyxia followed. They suffocated. The two outer crosses held dead bodies. Then the camera zooms to a corpse the man on the middle cross. But much to your surprise, before a mallet is raised, before the sledgehammer strikes his knees and shatters the bones in his legs, you and everybody else discovers there's no movement, there's no sound, there's nothing. Verse 33, but coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs as John loves to do. I believe he's here giving another allusion to the Old Testament Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. Way back in Exodus when God was saving Israel from Egypt, we read in Exodus 12:46 concerning the Passover lamb, nor are you to break a bone of it. This is what John has in view. He's again connecting Jesus as he has done so many times already directly to the Passover lamb. John the Baptist calls him the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Jesus says he was crucified about noon which was the time the Old Testament said you would slit the throat of the Passover lamb. As Jesus' body hangs on the cross, Exodus twelve forty six, I believe is in John's mind, you are not to break a bone of it. He's showing that the sacrifice of Jesus is the only way, the Passover lamb, to have your sins forgiven. In verse 36, John's gonna make very clear how significant the detail is that none of Jesus' bones were broken. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I want you to fix on, in my translation, two words in verse 33. Already dead. He was already dead. Hede altan tethne He was already dead. dead. Jesus' death would have certainly been surprising to the soldiers, no doubt to the Jews. Don't you remember that just two verses earlier, they went through a lot of trouble to go away from Golgotha, back down the hill. They ran to the temple court. They ran into the governor's palace. Pilate, Pilate, one more request, since you wouldn't change the sign above his head, Can you send a soldier with a sledgehammer to break their legs because we have to hurry up and get to church and these men need to be murdered before we go there? So they went through all the trouble of running down the hill to get the permission from Pilate, to get the message to the soldiers. This would have been a surprise that Jesus was already dead. The reason I want you to fix on those words is because verse 33, I believe John forces you to look at something that all of us, most of us, have a natural impulse to look away from. A carcass, a shell, a corpse, a body, not a life. This is death. This is the remains. This is what Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians, about an earthly tent. This is a hallowed moment, and the incarnation was not. Jesus had already died. So verse 34 happens. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. As I mentioned a moment ago, the Roman soldiers would have carried something commonly that would look to us like a javelin, a long, taller than a human pole with something like a metal arrowhead attached to the end of it. You've seen the pictures of this type of spear before. One scholar said the verb pierced could in itself suggest nothing more than a stab to see if he was still alive. Will he flinch? Is he pretending death so I don't strike his knees with a sledgehammer? Was it just a jab? No. The rest of the verse shows that there was a significant penetration of the spear into his body cavity. The wound? Brought a sudden flow of blood and water. Medical experts, there are many in the room who are certainly more expert than I'll ever be, disagree on what was pierced inside the body cavity of the Lord Jesus. The two most common theories are A, the spear pierced Jesus' heart, and the blood from the heart mingled with the fluid from the pericardial sac produced the flow of blood and water. B, It has been argued that fluid from the pericardial sac could not so readily escape from the body by such a wound. It would fill up the chest cavity instead of flowing out, filling the space around the lung and then oozing into the lung itself through the wound that the spear made. In tests performed on cadavers, it has been shown that where a chest has been severely injured but without penetration, hemorrhagic fluid, up to two liters of it, Gather between the pleural lining, the rib cage, and the lining of the lung. This separates the clearer serum at the top and the deep red layer at the bottom. If the chest cavity were then pierced at the bottom, both layers would then flow out. However, the medical experts work it out, there can be little doubt that the evangelist is emphasizing something in this gruesome verse in verse 34. What is he emphasizing? He's dead. It's his death as a man. It's his death beyond any shadow of a doubt. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, they called him the doctor affectionately because he never earned a theological doctorate like some of the PhD holding theologians of our day. He wasn't a theological doctor, he was a medical doctor. And he left his medical practice to engage in the sacred task of preaching. So they called him the doctor. And Lloyd-Jones, Not a theological, but a medical doctor argued extensively from this verse that he, that Jesus died of what Lloyd-Jones called a broken heart. I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I preached something that I don't know if you picked up on, but it was, uh, I usually don't have this much foresight, but it was a prelude to this moment. I dropped it there. I'm coming back to it here. I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. I don't expect you to remember what I preached on two weeks ago. But I said, I do not believe Jesus would have ever died if verse 30 were not in the Bible. He gave up his spirit. He yielded his spirit. He said, it's finished. Jesus had already made very clear in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. This command I have received from my father, both to lay down my life and to take it up again. The reason I do not believe Jesus would have ever died had he not voluntarily given up his life is because among other reasons, the wages of sin is death and Jesus had no sin. A sinless man cannot die. Adam would have lived forever had he not eaten the forbidden fruit. Jesus did not have the curse of death upon him because he had no sin in him. So when blood and water came out, Lloyd-Jones, and I think he's on to something, argued that he believed that John the apostle is wanting the reader to know, yes, Jesus was dead, but that he had died not of crucifixion, not of asphyxiation, but rather of an exploded heart. The Gospel writers do take pains to let us know that just a few hours before this, the night before, Jesus' sweat drops of blood because he was under such agony of the impending cross that was rolling upon him like a thunderstorm. He could see the wrath of God for the sins of the world coming at him like a tornado. He knew what he was about to bear. He knew the cup that he was about to drink. And as he actually endured it on the cross, Lloyd-Jones and others would argue that his heart exploded. So when blood and water flow out in verse 34, John wants you to know that he's dead, dead. But in his subtle way, John's drawing your mind back to the Old Testament if you have categories to see it. That little soft spot between the bottom of your rib and the top of your hip where this javelin would have gone into the cadaver of Christ and then outflowed blood and water, I believe John's taken our mind back to the Old Testament on multiple occasions, namely as he's been doing since the very first verse of his gospel to Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning, Genesis 1, in the beginning, John 1. In Genesis 2, when the first Adam slept under divine anesthesia and God pulled from his rib and made the woman and life came out of the side of the man. I say life because Eve literally means life. That's what Eve means. Life came out of the side of the man. So also, life flowed from the side of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death, not when he swooned, not when he slept, but when he died. In Exodus 17, when Israel was about to die of thirst and dehydration in the desert, God gave life to a parched and perishing people when water flowed out of the rock and gave quench to the thirst of those who had followed him through the Red Sea. This is why Augustus Toplady, the hymn writer, wrote, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Life. The soldiers come to Jesus. They have their mallet ready. They're ready to end the life of Jesus. But he already beat them to the punch. Verse 30, I said, tells us he gave up his spirit. He yielded to death. Why? I believe he climbed inside of death to kill it from the inside out. These men didn't break his legs so as to take his life from him. No one took Jesus's life from him. He gave his life. As the 17th century English theologian John Owen put it, in his death, Jesus put death to death. Now John is so constrained by the Holy Spirit, it's gotta be inspired by the Holy Spirit He's so constrained by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this account in this moment. He's the only eyewitness to give us an account of the cross in one of the four Gospels. And he's so constrained by the Holy Spirit just to give us the sheer facts of the matter rather than the interpretation of the moment. He's writing this account, mind you, decades after it took place. He knew what the death of Jesus accomplished for all who believe but he leaves the theologizing of it alone. But friends, we now have a completed canon. We have Bibles in our laps. We can read the scriptures and see how the New Testament writers under inspiration of the Holy Spirit took this moment in Holy Writ and expand to show us what God accomplished. As we look through the death of Jesus into the pages of the New Testament, what do we learn? what happened in verse 30? What had been accomplished in verse 34? When the man jabs a javelin into the corpse of Christ and he doesn't flinch because he's already dead, so many have meditated on the New Testament's expansion on what God accomplished in this moment Perhaps some of you are familiar with John Piper's little booklet, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. As he meditates through the passages of the New Testament that talk about what God accomplished in the death of Jesus, let me just give you a sampling of some of the things the New Testament tells us God accomplished when Jesus died. He became, Romans 3, a propitiation in his blood to absorb all the wrath of God for your sin. He brought pleasure, Isaiah 53.10, to the heart of God. It pleased the Father to crush him. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, God took joy in killing your sin by putting Jesus to death. In Hebrews 5, In his death, we learn that Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In Romans 5, we find that though we would hardly die for a righteous person, the wealth of God's love is demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We find out that God loves us. How do we know that he loves us? Because Galatians 2.20 says, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. That's his death. When there's a long list that Satan loves to call you by, all your sin, all your law-breaking, Satan knows your name and calls you by your sin. God knows your sin and calls you by Christ's name. Colossians 2.13 says, there's a long record of debt that you owe to God. That's true. But Colossians 2.13 says, God canceled the record of your debt, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus died, God absolved all your debt against him. In Ephesians 1, you find out that when Jesus died, you get redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your sins. In Romans 8.34, we find out that when Jesus died, it's impossible for you who trust in him to ever be condemned. There's no condemnation left. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who also intercedes for us. You are uncondemnable because Jesus died for you. You'll trust in him. In 1 Peter 3.18, we find that Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why did he do it? Why did he die on the cross? 1 Peter 3.18, to bring us to God. In 1 Corinthians 6, we find out that we were bought with the price of the blood of Jesus so that we would no longer perceive ourselves. Our deepest identity would no longer be, I belong to me, but I belong to him. In Hebrews 10.19, we find out that through the death of Jesus, by his blood, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We get set free from the slavery to our sin in Revelation 1-5. Why? Because Jesus died to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. We find out that we get to live a righteous life because Jesus died for us in 1 Peter two twenty four. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why did Jesus die? Why did he die for you? so that you would no longer live for yourself 2 Corinthians 5:15 but for him who died and rose again on your behalf why did jesus die for you so that he could give you something really worth boasting about may it never be galatians 6:14 that i would boast in anything except the cross of our lord jesus christ why did jesus die for you to free you from being afraid to die Therefore, since the children, Hebrews 2, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their life. We're not afraid to die anymore. That's why Jesus died for us. He died for you so that you would be guaranteed to rise again from the dead with him, 2 Timothy 2.11, if you died with him, you will also live with him. He died for you to unleash the power of God in the gospel to the whole world, to those who believe. The word of the cross, Well, you Christian people keep talking about this crucified man? Here's why. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved. It's the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Why did Jesus die? To save you and people who are only like you and people you like already, your affinity group and birds of a feather that flock together and people who think just like you and look just like you and talk just like you, and walk like you? No, to ransom from every tribe tongue People and nation, Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is why he died. He died to rescue us from final judgment in Hebrews 9. Christ will appear a second time without reference to sin to those, uh, for those who eagerly wait for him. That's who he's coming back for. He died for the joy that was set before him, re-entrance into Shekinah, the immediate presence of the only glorious and triune God. Fix your eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And he died to show that the worst evil that's ever happened was meant by God for the greatest possible good, Acts 4, Genesis 50. God planned the cross, he predestined it by his purpose for Jesus to die, to bring about everlasting good. That's just 24 of the dozens of additional reasons that the New Testament says Jesus died. Do you see why John is taking such pains to labor the details of the death of Jesus? so that it is established as an indisputable fact because herein lies the whole Christian hope that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, never to die again. With that, our main point, pretty much the whole sermon. Look at verse 35, then 36 and 37. Not only wickedness in 31 to 34, but the witness in verse 35. He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. Now if you were uh, ever called upon to be uh, serving jury duty, you might have a category for this, especially if you were selected. But juries know intuitively and they're instructed uh, before their assignment ensues that there's a responsibility, the burden of proof, beyond all reasonable doubt. And one of the most successful ways to eliminate any doubt of guilt against a convicted criminal, uh, uh, an accused criminal, is the most surefire way is personal admission of fault. I did it. The second most compelling way that an accused is found guilty is eyewitness. Calling an eyewitness to a murder trial is the strongest evidence short of the confession of guilt. If someone personally admits to a crime, you get no more watertight than that. That's the strongest. But second is eyewitness testimony. That's what John's doing in verse 35. John is the person in view, he who has seen, his testimony is true. He's letting us know that he was standing there. He saw it all unfold. He watched Jesus die. He watched the body of Jesus not flinch when a spear went into his side. He saw with his own eyes the blood and the water flow out from Jesus' pierced cadaver. He wants you to know why. He wrote his eyewitness testimony. Look at verse 35. The purpose statement of all purpose statements. So that you also may believe. We've said it nearly every week for two years. August 2020. Pastor Rick Couples (laughs) preached the first sermon in this series in John's Gospel. Every single Sunday just about since then. We have said John wrote his whole gospel for that phrase. He tells us in the next chapter, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why we called the whole series, Believe and Live. We've said it nearly every week. Verse 35, so that you may believe. I wonder if there's any non-Christians among us today. And if so, I wonder if right here, right now, you would put your faith in Jesus who died and rose again for you. Just trust him now. I'm, I'm irreversibly persuaded that more people get saved during preaching than after it. As you see Christ portrayed from the scriptures and the gospel proclaimed and the fact that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again to justify you forever before the face of God, you can believe upon him right now and be regenerated, which leads to the last point. This is the solid ground upon which all Christians stand. You can know for sure that your faith in Christ is not in vain because of, among other things, what verse 36 and 37 include. We've seen wickedness in 31 to 34, the witness in 35. Look at the word in 36 and 37. These things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. As sinister as the Jews were, kill him quick so we can get to our religious Sabbath. As depraved as the soldiers were, possibly with a sinister snicker as they heard the bones of the legs of the two men broken and perhaps laughing as they watched a javelin impale the man on the middle cross. As sinister as the Jews were and as depraved as the soldiers were and as hellish as Pilate was and as guilty as the two thieves were, John wants us to know that God, God, God was governing it all. He was over it all. He was working his plan to perfection in the midst of it all. When verse 36 quotes what John calls the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken, he's referring to two Passover passages and one psalm. Exodus 12, Numbers 9, the Passover lamb. Don't break one of the the bones of that sacrifice. He's showing us that Jesus and his blood alone is the blood of which takes away our sin. As the writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, Hebrews ten four, But not Jesus' blood. He's the Passover lamb of all Passover lambs. Takes away our sin. So he has Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 in view. But he also has, I believe, Psalm 34, 20 in view. In verse 36, not a bone of his shall be broken. Psalm 34 speaks about a righteous man, singular who's cared for by God. And we read this sentence in Psalm 34, 20, the Lord keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. I believe that's what John has in mind. And then in verse 37, another scripture, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John's quoting from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, this messianic portrait. When the people of God, in quotes, when Israel will look upon their Messiah, they will literally see him with their eyes, him whom they pierced. And they still don't believe. In Revelation 1-7, John, who wrote Revelation, picks up on that same verse from the Old Testament. And he says, when he comes back, when he comes back, John wants you to know for sure who you'll see. You'll see Zechariah twelve ten you will look upon him whom you pierced and you will mourn as one mourns as for an only son. When you see him then, it'll be everlastingly too late for all who didn't trust him by faith. This is why the Jews, the soldiers, Pilate did what they did. Including down to the smallest detail of how they did it because God had in eternity planned the death of his son to be this way. Jesus, 700 years before he was born, was spoken of like this. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. What do you do when you look at a corpse of a Messiah on a cross in John 19? I thought of a lot of applications and maybe you've already thought of a couple dozen yourself, but I'll give you a few. I think these are at the top and this is why the points were titled the way they were titled. Beware of spiritual pride. I said earlier people believe lies because they believe them. No stench is more nauseating in the nostrils of God than self-righteousness. And these Jews in our passage were an expose on self-righteousness. They pled to Pilate for the breaking of the legs of the crucified because they thought they were keeping Deuteronomy 21. They thought they were honoring God. Like Jesus said, people will kill you thinking they're offering service to God. How deceived do you have to be? How full of spiritual pride and blindness? How deep must it be? A high Sabbath was coming, a special Sabbath. They needed to be unencumbered by the long-lasting two or three-day death of the Son of God, they needed to hurry up, as I said a moment ago, and murder some folks so they could get to church on time. Spiritual pride. How do you know if you're blind by your own spiritual pride? I'll tell you, you don't know by asking yourself. How do you know? Ask yourself this question. Do you look at the crucified Jesus like John looked at him or like the Jews looked at him? Was his death an inconvenience to you or is it indispensable to you? Do you see Jesus as a bother to get past every day or as a beautiful savior to get to know more and more deeply until you see him face to face? Are you more focused on doing spiritual activity or on the savior who made atonement for your sins? At the bottom. Are you in love with the savior who died to take away your sin? Or are you in love with the sin for which the savior died? Beware of spiritual pride. Second, linger at the foot of the cross. As far as I can tell, John stood there since the night before. He was in the courtyard with Jesus. He watched grown men ball up their fist, wrap a robe around his face, and punch him as hard as they could. He saw people tear his beard from his face. He walked with him up the Via De La Rosa as he carried the cross beam. John was there the whole time. And he stood there at the foot of the cross for six plus hours as he watched his savior wheeze, trying to breathe, as he died for John's sin. Linger at the foot of the cross. The death of Jesus was slow. Sit there. See the price of your redemption. Count your sins and watch God as it were, lay them upon Jesus one by one by one. See Jesus take your condemnation and pay its price in full. If you're, if you are a Christian, you can't live at the foot of the cross. Let me say this carefully. Lord, help me. If you're a Christian, you cannot live at the foot of the cross and live in your sin. You want victory over your sin? Do you want to walk in spirit-filled fellowship with Christ? Do you want your closest companions, the people who know you, the real you, to know a humble, self-denying Christ follower? Then you'll pitch your tent at the base of the foot of the cross. You will live there, the cross is. At the cross, this is the epicenter of the Christian life. Only by lingering in the presence of a once crucified Messiah will your character be shaped with self-denying, dying agape love. We say this phrase a lot around here. I'm going to try to tell you in a few phrases what we mean by fixing your eyes on Jesus. This is what we mean. The one who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's the only pathway to husbands loving their wives with with Christ's selfless love. This is it. There's no formula, remedy, potion. It's you getting close to Christ and his cross, wives submitting to their husbands out of reverence for Jesus. Dads modeling the heart of the heavenly father. Do you want your character shaped like that? Moms laboring to make their homes a nursery for heaven. Children obeying their parents and the Lord. Friends pointing their peers to the heart of God. Neighbors being a lighthouse for the love of Christ. Only at the cross will you find the resources necessary for digging into the scriptures, not to know them, but to know their author, to know the heart of God. For confessing your sin honestly and openly, the cross says the worst that could possibly be said of you, you're so bad that you killed God's son. Nothing worse can be said of a man. And if you go to the cross, you'll also find the agape love of God showering over you. You're worse than you've ever thought, but God knows the bottom, and you're more loved than you've ever dared dream, and the cross screams that, sings that over your life. Why don't you walk in fellowship with the saints? Why don't you try to encourage other believers in their faith? Why don't you speak with your mouth words of gospel promise over those who are limping along in besetting sin? Because we're not living close to the cross. You wanna walk in fellowship with the saints? Go read Colossians 2 and find that it's at the cross where you find the resources necessary to be upbuilding the saints, or in Ephesians 4, the body building itself up in love, all happens at the cross. Loving people who are hard to love, patiently, prayerfully, walking alongside those who can't get their act together for Jesus, you get the resources you need in one and only one place at the cross. What I'm saying is this, the cross molds you, it shapes you, but it takes a long time for the tool and the die to be cast and for you to be pressed down into the mold of the cross but nobody else can live your Christian life for you you've got to linger at the foot of the cross you've got to let the heart of Christ shape you and transform your character so that you can say sentences like this for the love of Christ controls us having concluded this here's my baseline conclusion One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that, so that, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. For nothing, nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh, Father, cause this church to be marked by one grand reality, that we live our lives at the foot of the cross and we glory in the risen Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.